this is part two of my interview with Jeremy Petzad on Forum Nation. And so now, um, thinking back 30 years later, what, it sounds like you've already shared some of your initial impressions of, of what philanthropy is all about. And how has that changed over the last 30 years for you from your initial thoughts about you know, uh, the field and, and about philanthropy? Or have they, not, have they stayed pretty similar? Having my first experience with the Sophia Fund gave me a very idealistic view of philanthropy (laughs) because they were definitely trailblazers. Um, And uh, after that, I went to United Way, which is much more corporate and traditional. I was in the government affairs office um, working on public policy issues. And actually, that's when I also realized public policy is too remote. Frontline direct services is too close. And the Sophia Fund working in philanthropy felt just right because I felt like I brought on the ground experience, I brought lived experience, and I can help bridge philanthropy to understand what that's like and inform, you know, better grant making. Um, and after that, though, I went to a very mainstream Blue Blood Foundation, the Field Foundation right. of Illinois, um, who Um, at the time was led by an African-American man um, who is really trying to shift this philanthropy. Um, This is a foundation um, that um, is generations old. At the time that I was there, and I believe he's still on the board, is Marshall Field V. Oh, okay, this is the Marshall Field, okay. Yes, the the department department store, store exactly. And everyone was... um, the fifth, the fourth, the third, the uh, second, junior, senior, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Um, and I was still super young. Totally different world from what, how you grew up. With Absolutely. The second, third, fourth generation yes. doing this or that. Or, yeah. Right. And felt such a weight of responsibility because here I am, you know, even though I'm very grounded in, in the community, I didn't have a lot of experience. And, um, and for Handy to also trust me and uh, invest in my leadership and have me at the board meetings. Yeah. Handy Lindsay. Yes, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, was, you know, that's also another mentor. He's a great philanthropy leader, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So then, I, then you, you wind up eventually at GSER in, in 89, I think. And mm-hmm. I read um, you had written... Um, I can't remember where I saw it, that um, when you started at GSER, you were, uh, I think the words were highly skeptical of the value of a philanthropy serving organization, you know, a philanthropy association network um, to really have an impact. Um, although you, but you took the job anyway. <laughs> and, um, and now, speaking of evolutions, you, you now, you're, you now have a firm believer over, the, over you know, the, the, your time there of the power and impact of PSO. So, Talk to me about that evolution for you, coming in highly skeptical and now sort of the opposite, a firm believer. Yes, and I think the evolution of my thinking reflects the evolution of the sector. Because when I was at the Sophia Fund and at the Field Foundation, so when I engaged with affinity groups and regional associations back in the day, they were more about networking, professional development, member services. And those were really early days in the development of PSOs. 
and most didn't see themselves as change agents or leadership organizations. And my thinking about them has evolved over the years because PSOs now are squarely in the leadership space with very deep expertise, with strong points of views, and deeply rooted as well in values that are about equity and justice. And, um, and I think we have more power and influence than we did back then when we were more service oriented. I think um, so too. Yeah. yeah, but I do have an issue with the term PSO, philanthropy serving yes. organizations. Yes. I would vote to rename them PPOs, mm -hmm. philanthropy partnership organizations, not to be confused with prefer health organizations exactly so that would be the issue maybe with PPO right right people think we're in the healthcare industry exactly <laughs> um, but this, but yeah but yeah Sir, we're definitely PSOs definitely do more than serve Absolutely. exactly yeah yeah yep, yeah yep. Um, and um, in terms of the evolution to 20 years ago diversity was barely a thing that people right. discussed and, um, and when they did, it was largely a black and white issue. Um, and fast forward to today, racial equity is top of the mind for many of us in the sector. I mean, I think in the PSL sector, it is absolutely top of the mind. Right, and right. we're trying to make that um, top of the mind for philanthropy writ large. And the discussions around race and racism and white supremacy, et cetera, you know, is really front and center now. And it is inclusive of brown people. It's no longer a black and white conversation. So, so that's some of the evolution that I've seen. Um, and, um, and I've also seen evolution of issues that before that were really not even on the radar. So 20 years ago, issues like mass incarceration, criminal justice, mm -hmm. immigration, uh, people were not talking about that. Um, yeah. and, um, and today, PSOs are leading the charge on these very issues that are the most insidious in society and really the most um, you know, defining issues of our time and a reflection of who we currently are as a nation and to push it to be who we should aspire to be. Yeah, and I think also 20 years ago with PSOs, how PSOs worked pretty much mirrored the way philanthropy worked. It was in silos. And today we are working much more intersectionally as PSOs and, um, and challenging funders to do the same and really modeling what that looks like. Um, so yeah. I think that's the kind of change um, that I've seen. And I wanna give a plug to the forum because earlier this week, um, actually yesterday, yesterday. <laughs> we were um, together with um, you know various CEOs from PSOs across the country. I can't- uh, About 40, 40? I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And, um, the love of the conversation was just incredible. You know, we were talking about participatory grant making. Mm -hmm. We were talking about helping philanthropy take a more ecosystems approach and really truly understand how the work of the various PSOs connect in 
a deep way and that we're no longer um, working in parallel tracks, but really um, in a cross-cutting and collaborative way with a deep generosity of spirit. Absolutely. And uplifting each other. Yes, absolutely. And we were talking about funding of hate and trying to raise that as an issue, right? And, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, and I've seen this too since I got into the field in the mid-90s, the same... You know, a lot of the PSOs, particularly regional PSOs, or probably others, were more they they viewed themselves as like neutral con, neutral containers for, for to provide service to members. Had no perspective, no point of view, no no, um, and I, that's totally gone 180 um, for I think most, if not all, of the PSOs. So it's, I totally agree with that. I would, of yours. yeah, wholeheartedly agree. I mean, regional PSOs have been some of our most, you know, our biggest cheerleaders and have created space for us to talk to their members about these issues and um, and to integrate immigration into the conversations around racial equity or around health equity or whatever issues that their membership is interested in. And, and that's really elevated our work and um, in our mission. So, and on immigration, I also want to give a shout out. I don't want to name all the regional PSOs because I think yeah, literally we have worked with so, so many. Um, but also at, um, you know, yesterday's CEO summit, I was so thrilled to hear the National Committee on Responsive Philanthropy say they are tracking immigration funding and doing a statewide report card for each and every state. And, um, And over the years, I've seen our national colleagues, funders for LGBTQ issues, um, Hispanics in philanthropy, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in philanthropy, Neighborhood Funders Group, Change Philanthropy, and now I'm in trouble because I know you I've are, forgotten someone. You, are, you have, I'm sure. Yes. And that they are taking immigration on as an issue on their own. And, you know, they don't need to partner with us and they're amplifying um the critical importance of this issue and connecting it to other issues that are core to their missions. Mm-hmm. And um, and we collaborate, collaborate with these organizations, but we also support their ability to, you know, work on their own and, and push on immigration issues. Yeah, and that's been really heartening mm-hmm. to see. Um, when I started working at GSER, Dave, I, we could not say the I word. And we really had to have a bit of a stealth strategy. Wow. Yeah, much less the U word, which is undocumented. And so it has really So I, you mean immigrant? I as an immigrant. So you you just talked about refugees? No. You didn't even use the R word. We talked about- What did you talk about? (laughs) Housing, homelessness, poverty, or whatever it is. We connected ourselves to, to other issues and um and couldn't wow. really lead with immigration and um yeah That's they were and um and it really wasn't until 2000 when the demographics shifted so significantly that we were able to use the census data to say hey you know 
you really need to pay attention to this community. They're growing and they're growing not only in the states and cities that you normally would think, you know, New York, Chicago, LA, mm -hmm, you know, and right. so forth, um, but they're growing in places like the South um, and, um, you know, the Midwest and, and so on. You know, you're mentioning racial equity um, and definitely how the field, the philanthropic sector is talking about it much more in recent years than, than they have before, ever before. And can you talk a bit more about how that intersects with, with your work with immigrants and refugees and how GSER has been thinking in new or expanded ways about that and with your members and with others in the field? Um, how has that, that, that increased emphasis on racial equity um, changed how you're approaching or talking about or advocating for your work? I mean, racial equity is so central to our work. And in the current environment, the toxic narrative that dehumanizes, criminalizes, and mm -hmm. demonizes immigrants are a result of racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia, and all the other phobias that, um, that you can list. And um, so we really have a long way to go on the racial equity piece of the immigrant rights work. And at this time, I don't think immigrants and refugees are fully a part of philanthropy's analysis around racial equity. Um, but like I said before, we have uh, PSO allies who are really pushing on this. You know, you mentioned our work with AFI earlier, and that's actually who I did not mention. Oh, but <laughs> uh, we have worked together at the intersection of immigration and um, and racial equity, specifically around the experience um, of Black immigrants. And so, you know, while I say that philanthropy has a long way to go to be inclusive of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers, in its racial equity funding analysis and leadership, the immigrant rights movement also has a long way to go and has a lot of reckoning to do with its own racism, particularly anti-Black racism. And so the partnership with Susan and Afi has been really critical in increasing our respective networks understanding of these dynamics. Yeah, so yeah. Um, I think for AFI, they're now, they have, now have an immigrant lens. And a couple of years ago, AFI specifically included Black immigrants as part of, of their national convening. And we have our members talking about anti-Black racism and how that is not only harming immigrants and the immigrant rights movement, it's harming our overall effort to advance racial equity. You mentioned, you know, the... Uh, refer to um, the increasing sort of, I would guess, toxicity of, of the national conversation in recent years around immigrants and refugees. Um, and tell, tell me how that's really impacted your work and also you personally, um, um, uh, in, you know, since 2016 election, really, even, well, even during the campaign, I think we, it was already you know, evident um, that something's going on here um, and uh, not in a good way. Uh, so um, I know you and I have talked before about how this is you know, challenging for, for you personally, for others working in this space, but, but share, share with us a bit about that. 
Yes. So <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, I felt like philanthropy was a good place for me because right. it's it is removed from the front lines and the current toxic environment has placed what is an intermediary organization squarely on the front lines. Yeah. Um, about three quarters of our staff has a direct lived immigrant experience. And so that's been really, really hard. Um, since the campaign leading mm. up to the 2016 election, and since the election, staff wellness has been really top of the mind because we are assaulted every day and three quarters of our staff have a direct connection to the immigrant experience. And so we feel that extremely directly. So we have really had to focus on what we call co-care as an organization, um, caring for each other, being mindful of when somebody needs to um, step away and uh, and being there to um, to continue the work for that person mm -hmm. and um, and also but I think because we are so close to the experience we understand what's going on in the field and really have been mindful of not overtaxing the field um, especially when there's crisis after um, after crisis um, I will say that one of our funders um, during this time, I think it was in 2017, made um, a self-care grant to us. It was um, not a significant amount. I think we each ended up getting about $250 to do whatever we needed to do to regain equilibrium and to persevere and to have resilience in doing this work. Um, and that small amount of money meant so much to our team mm. because it was recognition. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that this work was also hard for us. And uh, yeah, so we've had to focus a lot on resilience, um, you know, over the past three years in particular. And it's, it's now anyway it seems almost relentless like you said every day there's something being said or something happening absolutely right. and we've been so heartened by philanthropy stepping up mm -hmm. over the past three years and making a lot of rapid response grants and that too has been heartening. That has lifted the spirits of our team as well. Um, but three years into this, um, we also want funders to really think about investing in long-term strategies to turn the tide. And, um, and in some ways, when we react to every manufactured crisis, we play into the hands of the opposition. They have us right where we want to be, pulled in a million directions and not able to think strategically about how to shift the narrative, shift culture, shift policy, shift public opinion, and, uh, and really do what needs to be done to, to humanize immigrants again and to see them as part of our communities. Yeah, they have you right where they want you, right? Exactly. Right. The distractions prevent all that from happening. So, 
Um, Absolutely. Right. Coming up in part three of my interview with Darren Petsad, she explains the connection between philanthropy and surfing. The reason I love surfing so much and uh, and windsurfing as well is because you must completely focus when you're out there or you're going to get injured. You know, like if you're thinking about work, you're thinking about, you know, the future of our country, (laughs) uh, the attacks on our democracy and a wave comes and you're not ready for it, you're going to get slammed. Continue listening to part three of my interview with Darren Petsa on Forum Nation. <laughs>